Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Where are we now? We're we're Midtown. Is we're this still Midtown? In Toronto. Uh, is this Midtown? I, I feel... call it West. Yeah, Northwest. This feels very West for us. We're from Scarborough, yeah. so this is this is almost another city to us. Right on. We're hanging out. Was this the dining room? Dining room. And this home is uh, over a century old. Yes, 1926. Not quite a century. Very, very cool. There's something very comforting about old homes. I don't know. I think it's like reminds you of visiting like your grandparents and great aunts and uncles when you're older, like just being in an old home. There's a feeling you get in an old home. Yeah. It also reminds me to lay off the technology a little bit more. Like we had to hunt around for an outlet. That's true. We couldn't find an outlet in the dining room. (laughs) These old houses will make you reevaluate whether or not you really need to recharge your iPad right now. (laughs) Well, hey everyone, it's Amanda and uh, we are in a very nice home in the West End of Toronto and we're hanging out today with Sandy. And I'm so glad you told me off mic that you go by Sandy because I would have called you by your full name. (laughs) By my email address. Yes. And uh, the reason that we're talking with Sandy today is we have a friend who works in this athletic realm. He's a personal trainer. And he had posted something online uh, that was a little bit controversial about an issue happening in the States with a cis female athlete um, not qualifying for her sport because she was competing against trans female athletes. And the question arose, is this fair? Is this not fair? And Sandy is, I guess I said PhD candidate, but it's actually PhD ABD, all but defended. And she has researched the history of this, what is fair, what is not fair, and sex testing in sports. So we wanted to get her input on this because you would know much more than we would. I'm happy to answer questions. Thank you so much for having us at your home today and for making me tea because it's freaking freezing out there. For all of you south of the border, I am so jealous right now. I'm so cold. Well, we have tea and we have central heating, so you're welcome anytime. Amazing. <laughs> all right. So before we get into the questions, um, can you sort of introduce yourself, let everybody know your background and your research, a, a little bit of history about what you have researched? Sure. Uh, my name is Sandy. I live in Toronto as well. I'm a former athlete and I have almost now three degrees in phys ed. So I have a bachelor's of phys ed. I have a master's of science in exercise science and soon a PhD in kinesiology. But as you mentioned, it's a history degree. It's not a degree in the bones and the muscles and the... What type of athlete? I was a runner. You were a runner. Okay. You look like a runner, actually. <laughs> it has to be that way. It has to be that way. Yeah, I was a runner. I, I went to a, I went on a scholarship to Boston College and I finished, but I came back to Canada to finish my degree at U of T and did my master's there. And I went to British Columbia for my PhD. Nice. Amazing. And we were talking about off mic how I don't even know how Sandy does all of this because she She has two children, very close in age to my children, and I am amazed that you managed to do all of this with two young kids. I don't put out two podcasts a week. (laughs) (laughs) You do not. Okay. (laughs) All right. So why don't we get into it? I guess to start with, maybe let's talk a little bit about the research you've done. Explain to everybody what exactly this means. What what is this sex testing? What What research have you done? Well, ever since women started playing sports, which is fairly recently in the grand scheme of things, they have been subject to tests about whether or not sport is good for them, whether or not their physiologies are suited to sports, and also whether or not people competing are actually women. Because once you develop as an athlete, the markers that define you as feminine start to fall away. Mm. The traditional way that we think about women is their femininity and their curves. 
that falls away a lot of the time, especially if you're an endurance athlete or a muscle builder. So that falls away. And then in the history of women in sport, what developed was something called the female apologetic, that in order to not be subject to rumors and accusations and innuendo about your sexuality, you had to be overtly feminine. So this is the era of Flojo in track, for example. Serena Williams is arguably an, a contemporary example, somebody who is overtly interested in fashion, uh, in their femininity. Mm-hmm. Um, but whereas that's impo- it's, today in our cultural moment, it's read as empowering in the history of women in sport. It was a strategy to relieve tension, relieve attention from these women who were crossing these cultural boundaries about what constitutes proper femininity and proper masculinity. Okay, am I understanding this correctly? Maybe I missed something. Are we saying that things like what these athletes are wearing, how they're dressing is to prove that they are in fact feminine and female? Well, yeah. So like in the 1970s and 80s, this was a trend in in people that uh, studied the sociology of things like sports and cultural moments. Um, popular culture, that sort of thing. There was a cultural moment wherein this overt femininity, t- femininity was taking over sports. Um, and some of it was ingrained in the rules in the forties and fifties, for example, women and men, but women had dress codes, right. you know, athletic teams still have dress codes, but the dress codes for men and women are gendered. They're different. Mm-hmm. So women's dress codes dictated what acceptable femininity would be. Those dress codes sort of like grandfathered through the ages even if, even when they stopped being in the codes of sports, even when they stopped being in the rules, like you must wear this or that when you're traveling, or you must look feminine or you must look mas- masculine. That's never been in the rules. But the um, pressure to be feminine in a context of sport is heightened, arguably. Mm-hmm. That because sport has always been this um, masculine preserve, they say, this, this school for masculinity, the presence of women in sport is confusing culturally, right? It, it sends up red flags all kinds of places. And our suspicion lands on different bodies at different times. So our suspicion landed on lesbian bodies in the 70s and 80s. So there's a lot of pressure on gay women to pass as straight. This is not news, right? right. But in sport, it had different implications than in just your regular life. You had to go into a locker room, right? You had to go talk about your personal life with your teammates. What I'm trying to describe is a culture of sport wherein women have to devise these workarounds just to exist, Mm -hmm. just for the right to be there, right? Without being harassed about it. So in the 70s and 80s, you were harassed if you were a lesbian. The 80s and 90s, you're overtly feminine. And this was not just a trend in sport, but in culture generally. There was power femininity, like power feminism, and right? right? And this pride, um, but it's so gendered, so typically gendered. So this is feminine and that is masculine. All I keep thinking about is spandex in the 80s. And then I'm thinking about women's beach volleyball attire. You and I have had this discussion multiple times where I've said to you, why do women beach volleyball players have to essentially be naked? That actually is in the rules. Yeah. Why? There Maybe is a, you can tell me. There is a maximum amount of fabric in the rules that a beach volleyball player can wear across her buttocks. Not a minimum, a maximum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But why? Sexuality. <laughs> Ugh, I was hoping there was a better answer. <laughs> Thank you for answering this question because no, every time Mark used to be a beach volleyball player. So we watch beach volleyball sometimes. And 
the athletes are incredible. These women are amazing what their bodies can do. But I always say to him, why, why do their butts have to be out? I, I'm shrugging my shoulders. You can't see it, but I don't know why. I don't know why. Women marathoners have to wear bikinis. Right. Like, why do you have to wear a bikini to run 800 meters? People think it makes them feel fast. There's all kinds of psychological reasons people will give. But as a social creature, you are influenced by your culture and your culture is giving you these overt signals that your sexuality is on display and you have to display it. And in that context, somebody that fails to display it in the proper way is subject to a lot of speculation, innuendo, Mm -hmm. harassment in the form of sex testing. Like that could constitute an example of harassment that you go into an event and somebody's going to give you a gynecological exam. So sex testing historically, we're going to get to that, but just to clarify, does this exist still today that you have to go through sex testing if somebody's questioning if you're female? That's right. Okay. So this definitely directly relates to then if it's fair or not fair, which I know we've decided we're not going to fully decide if this is fair or not fair, but if it's fair or not fair for trans females to be competing against cis females. Mm -hmm. I feel like I've already learned a lot and we're just starting. (laughs) (laughs) Where do you want to start with this, Mark, sport guy? I'm not sure where I want to start with this. Tell, tell me a little bit about the sex testing. Maybe we can start there because I, 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 I don't really know what that means. Right. So I said at the beginning that there's this generalized anxiety about women in sports. Mm-hmm. And the way that anxiety manifests changes according to the cultural moment and the place in history where it's occurring. When women first started being accepted into the Olympic Games in the 20s, this was a concern that some unscrupulous foreign Olympic committee behind the Iron Curtain, perhaps, would send a man, Mm -hmm. dress him up like a woman, and then win the glory for the homeland. So this was a real present concern for the IOC in their the minutes of their board meetings from this time, the minutes of the medical committee meetings. This is a preoccupation. So obviously, the fact that this was a real concern and a real preoccupation means that people do definitely feel there is an advantage if you are a male athlete competing against female athletes. I know that seems like it doesn't need to be said, but I guess this is the biggest concern that people have with trans athletes is biologically, are they at an advantage? Yeah. So there's lots of different ways that you can answer that question, whether whether or not this advantage exists. The default, though, the baseline since the 20s until the present even though we've advanced a lot since the 20s, the first instinct that they had is still our first instinct, which is look at the records, mm-hmm. look at the performances. Their difference is obvious, and that difference is has to be biological. This is where we're getting into iffy territory. Mm-hmm. That difference has to be biological, and that biological difference has to be in whatever it is that makes men men. So if it's genes or hormones or a combination of those things Mm -hmm. or rearing or a combination of those three things. Like whatever the combination is, the first instinct was there is a difference. It is biological. And then from there, and if you accept that sport, men have to be over here and women have to be over here, then we have a clear problem. Yeah, this is a problem. Where do the trans athletes fit? So the The current thinking among reformers, so people who are kind of dedicated to the good of sport, but interested in revising this part of it, the current thinking seems to be that trans women can be acceptable female competitors 
if they transition before puberty, no problem. Mm -hmm. If they transition after puberty, there's these standards that have to be met. And the standards are legal, anatomical, and hormonal. So that's the current position, that as long as uh, post-puberty trans women get surgery and hormone replacement and are legally recognized as women in their home country, then they are eligible to compete as women. So there are like problems if you accept that view, and there are problems if you don't accept that view. If you accept that view, then you have the problem of legal recognition is not easy to come by, even in so-called liberal democracies. Mm -hmm. Surgeries and medical interventions are really invasive and not medically necessary, right? A trans woman could live without surgery for her whole life, but they're medically, but they're necessary for eligibility reasons. So there's, if you accept that view, there's still this ethical undercurrent of we're advising people to undertake really life altering surgeries and treatments that are irreversible in order to maintain eligibility or to achieve eligibility to compete as a woman. Then you also, as the trans person, you might have to ask yourself that question. Unless you were already in the process of transitioning, if you were to transition solely to play a sport, there's these questions you got to ask yourself about the irreversibility of it, the impact on your the, your health, your mental health, your well-being, just from all those things that your previous guest was, you, you told me off mic that your previous guest was yeah, talking when we, about. Yeah, I was telling her we had um, a trans male on right, Sebastian right. Yep. and just to talk about all of the factors that maybe people don't consider you know there's the hormones there's the mental health issues there's everything everything in his life was affected with uh, this transition and what you were just saying like if you decide to transition strictly for sport there's you know this all these questions you have to ask yourself and like you were saying at the beginning you don't to be a trans woman you don't have to do surgery like gender is whatever you want it to be. You can identify as any gender without actually having to undergo major surgeries. So you would have to be, I assume, very, very dedicated to the sport to decide to do these surgeries strictly for sport. It depends on the organization as well. So I think like the the NCAA, their regulation for it is you have to be at least one year into your hormone therapy, I believe. Yes, yes. You have to be at least one or I'm not sure about the NCAA. I think it's two years mm. for Olympic competition, two years post-op or two years on uh, hormone therapy. Yeah. Has there been research or any kind of significant studies to show that, you know, two years, like why this arbitrary number of two years into hormone therapy, does that make this person biologically equal, I'm putting in air quotes, as a, a cis female? Or does it even matter because there's such biological variance that it doesn't matter, they just decided two years? I think the these rules in particular, they follow very closely the generally accepted medical guidelines. So if you're just a trans person looking to transition, these are their guidelines. This is how we do it. We do this surgery, we do this mental health support, we do this hormone replacement therapy, we track you over two years. I think that's just medical best practice. And that's what the IOC has adopted. Okay. So it's not completely arbitrary. It came from the medical community. Yeah, it may still be just the handful of clinicians who have have enough experience and worked carefully enough with trans people over enough period of time to be able to say, here's what we do. And Mm -hmm. here's what I would recommend. And then the IOC would say, okay, we'll take those guidelines. Those seem good. I'll take a personal example. This is not research based, but I have uh, two girls, two little girls, and 
I don't feel like we were ever really one way or another with the type of toys we bought them or whatever. I wouldn't say that like we were pushing female, again, air quotes, type toys or anything on them. And I have friends who are boy moms. And same idea. It wasn't like we were, you know, they were trying to raise them as boys and, you know, you only get cars and dinosaurs and whatever. And somehow I feel like naturally these kids now, is it other children? I don't know, maybe, possibly, but somehow naturally I feel like my girls just became so feminine, Mm. like I guess it's feminine in the traditional sense. They like pink and purple and they want to wear dresses and they like TV shows with princesses. And then my friends who have little boys, they like, I feel there is definitely biologically very big differences between males and females. And so I understand, you know, these, this athlete, for example, which is what started this whole idea for the podcast, this athlete who feels like it's not fair because biologically these uh, trans athletes have an advantage over me because they were biologically male. So is the hormone therapy and everything, is it making the playing field more level or does she still have a very valid point? Well, this is such an interesting thing because the faith that we put into science and scientific technologies to solve these problems of humanity, of just identity, of being a person in the world, the more we put our faith in our science and technology to solve those kinds of problems, the more difficulties we're going to end up with because science and technology is a problem in a solution. Mm-hmm. And this is not a problem in a solution. This is a, a, be- a problem of how do we be in the world together? So we can make a body do whatever we want it to, essentially. Let's just say we can do that. Not totally, but apparently somebody's been gene editing embryos. But right now with trans people, they literally can't. They describe it as a transition from one sex to the other, mm-hmm. right? So we put in that science and technology, when that person comes out the other side and says, ah, woman, and all of us go, ah, woman. We didn't solve the problem of this binary. We didn't solve the problem of, well, how does feminine and masculine work together? We didn't solve that problem. We just took somebody from one box and put them into the other box. But that problem still exists. So when we think that science and technology are going to solve these problems, we start to hit our heads against the wall and say, ah, why... Why is it so vexing? It's never going to end. I thought, yeah. you know, every, sub- every every subsequent sex testing policy has been designed to solve the problems raised by the previous sex testing policy. So each policy solves a set of problems, raises these other sets of concerns, and then the next policy comes along and addresses those. And then it, it like, um, like when you prune a tree, you cut off one branch and two grow in its place. That It's like that with sex testing too, or like mm-hmm. coral, where there's this, I use this metaphor in my dissertation, like um, this idea of the natural biological advantage. It's been called the advantage hypothesis, that men are naturally more... Um, athletically inclined than women for a variety of biological reasons. So the, the, the basic idea that um, men and women are biologically different, that men are biologically superior, um, gives them this athletic advantage naturally. This is like the coral upon which all of the other sex testing policies then grow, and they just expand from that base that, okay, there's this thing that, that men are advantageous in this way, athletically. And so we need this policy in order for the, to protect women's sport from this advantage. Mm-hmm. And once that's established as true and necessary, then all these policies just kind of grow up around it. And it's still the same shape. It just gets kind of bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. And the problems kind of go further and further out so that we end up with a sex testing policy that went to the court for arbitration for sport 
and then went to the Supreme Court of Switzerland because the problem was not resolved. Do you know the story of Castor Semenya? No, do you? Oh, well, this is a story. This is Castor Semenya. Uh, she's a South African runner. 2009, she won the world championships in athletics for 800 meters. Uh, she was sex tested afterwards. And she was disqualified. Why? It's confidential. Oh. This is another problem. What are the metrics for sex testing? Like, what are we looking at? Changes over time. Okay. The first time, we never got through this story. Oh, the first sex tests were you had to bring a doctor's note. You had to go to your doctor and they signed it, said, yes, you're a woman. Okay. And you brought that to the IOC and you competed. After that, they're like, you know what? These East Germans, these Russians, right. the Soviet Union. The national people, pride is more important than anything else. They're, they're going to send people that aren't women. And they're going to falsify those documents. So we need a more airtight solution. We're going to do X-chromatin testing. So they call that the buckle smear test or the bar body test, the inactivated X that appears mostly in female cells or cells from female samples. When that was discovered in the middle of the 1950s, there was this like arms race in the world of molecular biology and cytology that what does this mean, this this thing that shows up in female cells, it doesn't show up in male cells. Mm-hmm. Well, by the time the, in the 19, end of the 1960s, when the IOC got a hold of it, they decided this is perfect. Mm-hmm. We give these women this buckle smear test. If this strange little dot appears in their test, that means they're female. If it's not there, it means they're not female and we can disqualify them. Mm-hmm. So that seemed to solve the problem. There weren't going to be these men competing as women. Right. They were not going to uh, these um, communist Iron Curtain countries were not going to undermine the values of the Olympics. Mm-hmm. This, um, cooperative internationalism, the striving for excellence and brotherhood and all this kind of stuff. And um, there were media scandals at the time. In the 1967 um, Commonwealth Games, no, uh, European Cup Championships, a Polish sprinter got disqualified for sex testing. The X-chromatin test before the IOC picked it up, the IAAF was using it. Mm-hmm. And that was that made it into the newspapers. And so the second problem the IOC wanted to solve was keep it out of the newspaper. Right. So the first problem, communist men coming in. The second problem is you got to keep it out of the newspapers. After they've introduced it in Grenoble in the Winter Games and then in 1968, and then again in the Summer Games in 1968. So they tested it out twice in 1968. They worked out some of the bugs. And that was the test they used until 2000. Hmm. And at that point, after the IAAF had already abandoned it, after professional societies in the US and Canada and worldwide actually condemned the practice of excrematin testing, um, the Lawson Wilkins Endocrine Society, Pediatric Society of Canada and America, lots and lots of different molecular biologists, cytologists signed petitions to the IOC that this is not the appropriate test for the thing that you want to do. Was the reason because of like genetic variance and mutation? Like, why did they decide this? test was not valid anymore. Yeah. So there were a couple of reasons. One of, one of them is that the method that needed to be used, it was subject to error. So mm-hmm. a lot of false mm-hmm. positives, a lot of false negatives. And even if you were uh, an expert reader, if you had a lot of expertise, you could still, you could still maybe 10% of the time mm-hmm. come up with a, a false positive or negative. Right. And that's a big, that's a big thing there. And the other thing is things like mosaicism, that there's a condition where in some of your body cells will have XX, some of your body cells will have XY. And so you could have a sample that would give you uh, contradictory information. And there's also the case where perfectly normal looking women would have an XY. XXY. Or XXY. Yeah. Yeah. Kleinfeld, Kleinfeld, Kleinfeld syndrome. Yep. But there's also an XY woman. And the condition is called androgen insensitivity syndrome. Mm. And that is a condition where in the 
uh, SRY region, the SRY region of the Y chromosome, which is largely understood to be responsible for masculinizing effects, like starting testes development, and then from the testes development, the hormone development. So the SRY is key there for masculinization of embryos. Women with an XY chromosome complement often lack this SRY area of the gene. It's mutated. And so they develop they don't develop in the normal male pathway. They develop and are usually raised as women with normal looking women bodies, normal looking or normal seeming women people. Is there any um, evidence or any anything been studied to show that these women, normal looking women, have any kind of advantage, biological genetic advantage in sport? Only hearsay, not hearsay. What's the word? Circumstantial, maybe. Right. It's the evidence is it's of the same ilk as look at the record books and that will tell you if there's a biological advantage or not. Mm -hmm. The record books are the outcome of all kinds of interventions, biological, evolutionary, cultural, training, nutrition, blah, 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 blah. The record is the endpoint of all that process. It's not one thing. Any particular genotype can lead to a number of phenotypes. You know that principle. Right. Okay. The same is true for androgen insensitivity syndrome. You have this genetic mutation, but there's a range of phenotypes that it can lead to. So some women would be more masculinized than others, some less, some women wouldn't know at all that they have this condition. Maybe they investigate it when they don't menstruate. Maybe they don't. Maybe they investigate it if they want to get pregnant. Maybe they don't, you know, so they could live their whole lives and just be normal women without any idea that this condition exists. But then there's women who have um, ambiguous genitalia, they would say in the medical literature, mm -hmm. the same condition, just more masculinized appearance, maybe more hirsute, right? More hair on the face and body, that kind of thing. So when you're saying, what are they looking for in sex testing? Mm -hmm. It's changed. First, they were just looking for okay, the doctor said so, right. right? So just once over, then they were looking for the XY, and then they were looking for the SRY, and then they stopped looking for genetic stuff altogether. And for a period of time from 2000 until present, the policy has been a challenge policy that I don't think that competitor uh, is a woman. Okay. And I think something needs to be investigated here. Hmm. So then, according to the rules, if the relevant officials, the IOC Medical Commission, supposedly, I don't know who would, but that commission usually is in charge of that kind of thing. If they agree that there is something to be investigated, then an investigation. So Castor Semenya in 2009 was subject to this kind of policy, that there was enough people making enough noise and mm -hmm. having enough questions about her look and her performance because she was, what, 18 at the time, in mm -hmm. 2009. She exploded onto the world scene to win the world championships after two years, maybe, of being an athlete. So these circumstances were suspicious, and her dominance of the field, while she didn't get a world record or anything, her dominance of the current field was suspicious. Mm -hmm. And so enough suspicions were raised, and she was sex-tested, and whatever they found was troubling enough, or it made her subject to the rest of the regulations, which were, you have to put your body in order. You know, you got to have the surgery, the hormone therapy, and all that kind of stuff. And then you can go back and, and be a woman athlete. Mm. So those same rules that were put in place in order to respect the human rights of a trans woman who wants to self-identify, mm -hmm. women who have no need for transitioning, right? Who have always kind of... Always identified as a woman. Always identified as a woman, always been re reared, treated, socially accepted. And all the legal documents, check female. So then the same policy is now 
it's, it's an identical policy applying to these two different populations. Yeah. So that's an interesting case of like, what is fair? What is ethical? What is right? What does the sex testing look like now, though? Or do we not know? It's a big secret. But usually what it looks like is you ran a big race and you won or you placed or something. And we suspect there might be some advantage going on. So we're going to take you for a doping test. Mm. When you do a doping test, you have to show your body to the observer from your knees to your shoulders. And they have to observe the urine leaving your body. I've been dope tested. It's not pleasant. Sounds horribly invasive. It's very invasive. And when people talk abstractly about these rules about like gynecological exam here, a health check there, and they just so blase about it, they mm-hmm. forget that. You're this, a person? Th- you're a person. And this is part of a competition. And, and this is a really... Uh, I I don't want, for lack of a better word, private. So they have to. But it's got to be oh, like that. Oh, but it's doping. So they, they mask it under doping. So they say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They say we're, you're going to go for a dope test, mm-hmm. which is standard these days. Like you win a big race, mm-hmm. you go for a dope test. But they use the opportunity to see whether or not your genitals are ambiguous. Is it masked under doping, or is it originally just like an inquiry into doping, or do you think like that's just kind of the the shield for it? For my research, I go through the minutes of their IOC board meetings and the mm-hmm. medical commission. And I have the archives of some of the doctors, the medical geneticists and the clinicians that were advising the IOC back then. And some of them are the same people that are advising today. And in their documents and their letters to one another, this idea of using the doping test as a way to get a look, it has always been in the background and they've always rejected it. It's always been, you got to keep them separate. You can't do them at the same time. At the same time, it's irrefutable that their practice is you take somebody for a doping test Mm -hmm. and you look at their genitals. That's what it happens. That happened to Castor Semenya. That happened to Duti Chand in in India. She was a middle distance runner as well. It happened to some African runners. There's a a film, a German film. It's about sex testing in sports, but it documents quite materially, like, what actually happens here? And there's women that say, I went, I won this big race. I went for a dope test. They told me I had to go do the surgery. They told me I had to get these hormones. Mm. And then they sent me back to my little village in the middle of Africa with no follow-up, right. with no plan, just try training more again, yeah. see what happens. I'm trying to understand the surgery. Like what type of surgery are they sending these people for? My guess is godanectomies. Take your... Um, so women sometimes will have internal testes in place of their ovaries. Right. So the situation is that in androgen insensitivity, they have testes. The testes are producing testosterone. It is circulating, but they lack the receptor cells to make use of the testosterone. And so all of the relevant receptors that would normally do something in response to testosterone, grow your hair, grow your muscles, whatever else is relevant to sex testing, that kind of stuff, they have it. And so they got to get rid of it. Mm. Wow. This goes so much deeper than I thought it did. The world of sports is crazy. Yeah. That's probably not a nice word to use. It's just fascinating to me. There's so many things. Like I said, I I knew that this wasn't a black and white question of whether or not um, trans athletes competing against uh, biological male or female athletes was, quote, fair. I knew that wasn't just a black and white answer, but I didn't even consider all of the different genetic variances that exist. And somebody who has essentially been, as you, you know, use the metaphor of the boxes, always been boxed as female could be questioned and then told, you have to go get surgery because you're not female enough. That's right. And usually to the astonishment of the athlete herself, Mm -hmm. like that is a big, that's big news. If you've always 
just identified as female, why would you think anything otherwise? Yeah. And the autonomy of your body, you know, your right to self-expression, this right to like autonomy, your bodily autonomy, it's compromised. Even if a woman agrees, like an athlete would be cornered and say, you have to do these things in order to remain eligible. But don't worry, after you do those things, you'll still win. It'll still be all okay. But if you don't do it, then you can't compete. Right. Then that's a false choice, really. And, and it's a lie because after the surgery, the women don't come back and compete often. And in fact, since the 1970s, it's been understood within the IOC, within the peop- within these organizations that demand sex testing and that perform them. It's been understood in these places that just getting the first negative sex test, like, oh, there's a problem with your buckle smear test. Mm-hmm. We got to come back for some follow-up tests so we can figure out what's going on. They don't come back to the follow-up tests. They disappear from sport. Are any of these athletes ever followed up with? Or I, I'm imagining the number of like mental health issues that come out of this or like honestly PTSD going to get surgery that you never wanted so that you could... I, all of this is pretty intense. Yeah. Well, you also have to think of the mind of an athlete. An athlete's different, right? Yeah. An athlete wants to compete. So it's almost, I will do anything to be an athlete, to identify as an athlete, because that's what I've been the whole time. You don't think about it, really. You just go ahead and, and, and do what you got to do to continue being the person that you you know yourself to be. So let's talk about the trans female athletes then. That's still genetically in their mind. They're an athlete. They want to be an athlete. They'll do anything to compete. So if they follow this protocol and they do the hormone therapy for two years and they do surgery and they identify as female, then shouldn't they have the right to compete? with biological females? Yeah, that's the, that's what the policy the policy says. These are the conditions for fairness. You can't have too much testosterone. That's unfair. The condition for fairness is is testosterone now. So we have to accept then that the biological advantage men have is testosterone. That's right. And the evidence that they is often used is um, evidence from doping um, tests, mm-hmm. doping research, which clearly demonstrate the effects of testosterone on training yep. performance. They don't do tests on trans athletes necessarily, but I I do think there's a if you're interested there's a woman a trans woman in Toronto who competes in cycling and I think she has a cousin who's a exercise physiologist anyway he's testing her of mm-hmm. post transition athleticism like muscle power on the stationary bike and that kind of stuff I think the aim for her though is to optimize the hormone situation so that it's not too low for her health well-being performance whatever but not too high that right. she would test she would she yeah, needs fail to a be test female enough but still be able to participate in her sport I think that's the trick because for the women so the non-trans women who get caught up in sex testing policies, they don't have a happy ending. They don't come back and win again. No, it sounds awful. If they go back for these follow-up treatments and then accept the surgeries, they still don't go back and run again. They don't have they don't have the gold standard of care, first of all, that some of the IOC advisors would So we can't even really study if doing the surgeries and doing, you know, what they were advised to do is actually then putting them at a disadvantage because they're not coming back. Being advised to do, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we can say that. I mean, the bottom line is, if you want to compete, this is what you got to do. It's hard to know. 
It's hard to know. And that's one of those things that the athlete probably would know better in retrospect. Mm -hmm. But definitely from what I know, um, in my, in my research, I tried to know what the doctors knew and what the, the policy makers mm -hmm. knew. What were they thinking? What were the concerns? What made this policy develop and then that policy develop? And what made these policies no longer tenable? What made a perfectly good policy yesterday turn into dust today? One of the things that seems, seems to trigger policy change is innovation in some field. And then the feedback from the athletes, like, we will not do a, another gynecological inspection. That stimulated the buckle smear test. Okay, mm -hmm. you won't do physical inspections anymore. We're going to do this one. Then the media was involved. Is this person a woman? Is the Olympics a fraud? That stimulated some policy change about we have to test the women before they get to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And we have to have these certificates that are unduplicatable and this kind of thing. And strict confidence, strict secrecy. And then after the after the genetic tests were established, only minor things like that changed. Only like, how do we keep it secret? How do we uh, prevent people from getting to the Olympics in the first place if mm -hmm. they're going to pose a problem? Well, the policy kind of moved up and upstream and to prevent anything untoward from actually coming out at the Olympics and making the press or causing a stir with the athletes. Mm -hmm. And the, the trans issue is interesting because the, it's what seems to have stimulated the, the policy on trans inclusion, which was, which was done in 2005, was human rights arguments. So law basically started, considerations of law started to be taken up really seriously. So women who have transitioned have the same human rights, one hopefully will argue, as any, you know, natural born woman would have. But then how do we deal with this biological advantage idea mm -hmm. for sport? Like we say, gender is different than sex. Mm -hmm. So the um, identification with femininity, with womanhood, gender construction, that doesn't have, as we can see clearly in our world today, it doesn't have anything to do with testicles or well, exactly. vaginas. or yeah. So there's a need, just like I said, there's a need to not be um, too romanced by science and technology to solve these kinds of problems. We can't be too romanced by the, the rhetoric of human rights to solve these problems either because the human rights angle seems to me to take as standard a situation like woman and man are two different things and you know box a and box b and that when one person goes from one box to the other box they should automatically be conferred all of the benefits and responsibilities of that box right that's the problem that's like you said that created a new problem that's right and it, it also leapfrogs the whole like I said, it doesn't, it doesn't solve that problem of binary that we're still mm -hmm. wanting people to be in these boxes. And it also seems to, like I said before, it introduces new problems. And the problems that this one introduces is that it, it leapfrogs over the whole history of women, women in society, women in sport, mm -hmm. women have a history. Are they even signing up for womanhood period? Or is like, gender to me now seems like something that almost doesn't exist. Like that's how I kind of explain it. Like there's no, there's genders imagined. It's, it's nothing. I don't, I don't understand. Like, are they signing up to be a woman? No, they're just, they don't identify with everything, I guess, that's culturally stereotypical, stereotypically male. They identify more with everything that's more female, but I don't, I don't think maybe I'm wrong and I'm just, looking at this way too simplistically that they're signing up to be a woman just i'm going to identify as female and do female things and live 
female. That didn't make any sense. I don't think that somebody who transitions from male to female necessarily then decides, okay, so I'm going to take on every female role in, in my household. Every stereotypically, stereotypical female role. I don't, I don't know. I don't think that's because somebody who's transitioning from, let's say, male to female understands that gender is not real. Yeah. So they, they don't feel the need to be stereotypically female or male. Just I am who I am. I'm going to present this way. So are they signing up to be a woman? No. Okay. They're competing as women, though. Problem. This is the problem. The thing about gender is that it, it's constructed, but it, it doesn't seem to be nothing. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's constructed. It, it, the way that we understand it now is not the way that it's always been understood. For example, like female and male, have, those roles have gone reconstructed over, the, over time. Women mm-hmm. way more than men. Men still have a Definitely. lot of room for reconstruction. So I think what we want is to say, okay, this human rights framework is what we're going to do, and it is right. It is the right thing. But that doesn't mean there aren't going to be consequences. That means there aren't going to be other problems that arise because of the solution that we we generated. To find a solution is to shut down conversation about the problem and to pretend like the problem doesn't exist. But the problem is there. The problem of gender relations is always there. Mm-hmm. That is that's the problem that kind of sparks all of this creativity around gender nonconformity. That realization, that difference. You know, difference in sameness is this push and pull of the same impetus to like be yourself and to identify in your own authentic way. Mm-hmm. But it's not siloed. We all affect one another. And so whatever yeah. happens over here with the trans inclusion policy is affecting these intersex women over here and it's affecting these cis women mm-hmm. over here. And to say like whose rights are more important to protect is a race to the bottom, (laughs) right? It's like a competition over who's been oppressed the most. Mm -hmm. And that is not a fun contest to win, no matter, you know? So it's tricky is the short answer. It is, well, it's the short answer, it's the long answer, it's the only answer. I don't know if there will ever be a full solution because you can't, you can't say to a trans athlete, you can't be an athlete. That's insane. But then where do they fit? Are they, are they competing against biological women? Well, they can't compete against men. I don't know why they couldn't compete against men, honestly. I wonder if male athletes would have an issue with this or would trans, would trans females feel like it's not fair? Because again, they are possibly, I think that, I think that's got more to do with it. Yeah. Because it, 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 I don't think necessarily it would be fair because if they are, um, undergoing hormone therapy, then there's got to to be a disadvantage for them competing against men. But then even with the hormone therapy, are they at an advantage competing against cis women? So where do they fit? They have to fit somewhere. One, we know for an athlete to be successful, there has to be some sort of genetic variance that puts you at a level above somebody else. And therefore, you know, you can perform better. Does sex testing work to actually level that playing field? That question is almost unanswerable. Okay. I mean, what do you need to answer that question? Uh, Everybody would have to be genetically the same. Everybody would have to be genetically the same in every other way except their sex chromosome. Um, so the sh- yeah, so I, I think that question is very it's it's an interesting um, way to, that somebody could orient themselves around the data. Like here's some biological data. Here's some uh, data from what the courts have decided on cases like this. Here's some uh, lived experience information that I need to take on. You could you know, but. To answer that that question, it's uh, it's all of those things. Okay. The next thing. So no. So yeah. That said, there are definitely 
genetic advantages that people can have. Yes. I mean, that's that's the idea with competition, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, there's some sort of genetic advantage that you have over me, even if we're training the exact same way that allows you to perform better than me. Yeah. That's a big part of what athletics is. You can go through the same training as somebody else, but what what makes you the better athlete? It's your genes. That's it. Yeah. And so if you have these two parallel lines of women competing and men competing in their own parallel lines, then you got to have some reason to put them in one or the other. And Mm -hmm. normally people just put themselves there. So if everybody just put themselves there, we could wait and see what happens. We could see what happens when trans women compete against cis women with no regulations? Just if you if you identify as a woman, you can enter this race as a woman, for example. We could see what happens. Is there um, a deluge of trans athletes looking to finally get their gold medal? Or will there be one or two recreational athletes here or there that you know, win the Moncton Marathon or the, mm-hmm. you know, the f- local fun run or something like that. It could go either way. It could be a non-issue completely, or it could like this um, woman in Connecticut who, or this athlete, mm-hmm. high school athlete. She's a high school, She's athlete. A high school athlete. athlete. This high school athlete in Connecticut. This could be the beginning of a lot of those problems for everybody, a lot for sport. And if, I don't know, it could be also, if we look at the past, we can see that in the early 1980s, there was a big problem about elite girls. Where were they going to play? Uh, the sport systems in Canada were not developed enough for women who were, or for young girls who were developing quickly as athletes because of the advocacy of their mothers for the, for a large part. They had nowhere to play after they got out of their house league. And so they started petitioning for access to boys leagues mm-hmm. and cases that went to the courts, you know, the Supreme Court or even the, the appellate courts below, they sided with, with the girls. Mm-hmm. This historic um, exclusion from physical activity and sport has a legacy of discrimination. Mm-hmm. And in order to address that legacy of discrimination, we need to create rules that bend the rules. Like we need to create rules that allow girls to play on boys sports. And that happened. So you fast forward to 2005, it seems to be kind of a similar but different thing that here's some trans athletes are saying, I don't have anywhere to play. Yeah. And then here are the women going, okay, well, let's find somewhere for you to play. <laughs> Not the women, but the, the officials in this yeah, case. Yeah. And, and the, and the cis women, or at least part of them are saying, well, Fuck, this isn't fair anymore. Yeah, that's what yeah, there's, yeah. it's not fair because they are at a biological advantage. And the big question mark is, are they? If they, so are if, they? if they are, does that, does that mean the right thing to do is clear? No. So then what's the question about? Do they have an advantage? If, if the answer to that question leads us to a decision about what's fair and what's fair, then let's answer that question. The answer is still going to create a problem because if the answer is it's not fair, okay. So again, I go back to what I was saying at the beginning. You can't say to a trans athlete, you can't be an athlete. So if they're at a genetic advantage, then what? I also, I think the level of sport is hugely important in this too, because like you were saying, the IOC has their rules or stipulations as to what hormone therapy needs to be done for how many years. The the NCAA has their own. This person that we're talking about from Connecticut, high school student. Right. Right. So I don't think there were any rules and regulations Mm. towards trans at all. Mm. And her big argument is, hey, I didn't qualify and I'm not moving to the next round because I was running against 
trans women like this is a big problem mm-hmm. and now guess what i'm not gonna have college scouters in the stands looking at me run for scholarships to universities and colleges in the states because of this like i'm getting screwed here mm-hmm. that's what she's saying mm-hmm. yeah and i don't disagree with her if there's no regulations in place then who's to say that these trans women didn't just it's hard it is really hard it's hard to even like it's hard so you think there's no such thing as gender then what is trans Mm -hmm. does there have to be a sport category for trans i don't think so i think that's going to be tricky to moderate as well because again it's all different to be a trans person there is no actual definition really because it's how you identify the levels of hormone therapy surgeries all of these things are some people take those routes some people don't it's there's so there is no definition of trans doesn't exist so, and on top of that fine i'm a trans i'm trans woman and i'm competing against cis women who are doped up mm-hmm. right still level playing field possibly mm-hmm. except the women who except the women who are doped up if they are if they are tested there's consequences to that well yes this is the thing to harmonize the doping and the sex testing regulations requires mm. these kinds of negotiations between quantitative fairness like Mm -hmm. things that we can measure and make the same Mm -hmm. and like this qualitative sense of justice what is right treatment for people right it's so weird i had a philosophy of sport in a professor in university who basically i mean in philosophy courses there's never an answer right it's constant discussion which is why i loved that class so much but he used to um always say to us why are we so obsessed with what is fair is anything fair is sport fair like we were talking about with genetics Mm. and is is sport fair at all and why like why are these rules about doping and hormone why are there all these rules what's fair yeah fair is for a long time has just been described as anatomical equivalents that your bits are like his bits and your bits are like my bits and that's we're equivalent in that way and then we train and have a competition and then we see who's the better man or woman on the day that's the idea that's the goal but it got so serious i think that these questions of difference are amplified in sport Mm -hmm. you know in your daily life i mean there are gender neutral bathrooms Mm -hmm. like there are General neutral uh, declarations on your ID cards. There's Human rights is the right way to go for pretty much everything else in society. Like, we can all coexist regardless of what your gender identity is. We can all coexist perfectly fine until it comes to sport. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, sport is sport is like this microcosm of a place where we, um, like a proxy war, we put our anxieties and our fears and our problems and we put them in there and we're going to work them out. You know, you go to the gym and you pound out some reps or you go for a long run or like it works physically, but it also works metaphorically that we put our anxiety about sexual difference into sport and then our ideas about sexual difference have to be reflected by our sport so men's sports have to be like this women's sports have to be like that male athletes have to be like this women athletes have to be like that and when castor semenya won in 2009 she looked more him than her like her body was more muscular less curvy i was on a listserv a track canada listserv and the people on the listserv were saying things like even her eye movements are masculine (laughs) how do you have masculine (laughs) eye movements well this is the thing like once once you see it right once you see it it's there yeah that's the construct once you see it it's there and since sport is really just putting one body against another body like it's it's 
physical competition, then it comes down to the, I guess the fairness question comes down to how equal of a playing field is your body versus my body. There's a clash there between the human rights idea that Mm -hmm. I self-identify based on my gender, which is a construct Mm -hmm. that we agreed doesn't exist. And then we have this idea of fairness based on biological equivalence, mm-hmm. which we all agree we have bodies. Mm-hmm. So there's these two things. One thing doesn't exist. One thing does exist. The human rights <laughs> framework would say, let's base it on this thing that doesn't exist. And the uh, biolog- or the scientific or medical perspective would say, let's bi- base it on this thing that we know exists. But then we're not being fair in terms of human rights. Maybe. That's it. I got to drop the mic. I <laughs> My head is spinning. But that's just why there's so many masters to serve in this question. We have to listen to the scientists. We have to listen to the human rights watchers. We have to listen to the athletes, cisgender, the trans, the people who thought they were cisgender, but then got sex tested and found out they were something else. All of them. Mm -hmm. And these are different paradigms. They're different ways of thinking. They're different ways of understanding our social contract to one another. No wonder there's so many issues of mental health amongst athletes. Mm. That's a whole other discussion, but oh my. Trans is having a moment, it seems, in in our culture, in terms of acceptability, Mm -hmm. pride, legitimacy. Uh, Stereotypes and stigmas are folding, right? Mm. You know, not quickly maybe, but suddenly it seems, or, you know, one of those things like an overnight success after 30 years of work, one of those, but it seems to be there's something of a moment in trans right now. It's so promising, but it's also, it feels to me a little bit dangerous because the promise is that maybe there'll be this breakthrough in the ways that we conceive of our relationship to one another, the ways that everybody identifies in terms of sex or gender can be loosened. Maybe less sexual harassment, for example, in a real world example, maybe, you know, this this moment of uh, gender nonconformity could lead to some real political change, some real social cultural change. The other thing is, though, that it could stimulate um, resentment and infighting among women, you know, mm. like the cis women and the trans women right now, they're set up as adversaries. And that doesn't seem like a good situation. Are you talking about in general or just in sport? Sorry, no, just in sport. So in this moment, this broader cultural moment where trans seems to be having um, breakthroughs mm-hmm. uh, in the in the cultural imaginary. In sport, women and, and trans women are, are pitted against one another. Yeah. So the danger of this moment is that like the parade <laughs> for inclusion tramples over something else that we value. Yeah. And that worries me only because like this fighting, mm-hmm. my rights against your rights is developing. My head is spinning, but I like it. Um, <laughs> well, to everybody listening, I mean, if you were looking for an answer, I guess we did start off the entire recording by saying that there really isn't an answer. I'd be interested to know what other people think regarding fairness and biological differences and these rules that might possibly be arbitrary amongst the medical community of two years of hormone therapy and surgeries. And does that equal the playing field at all? Are we possibly uh, creating other problems by doing that? And where does human rights fit in in the world of sport? So many more questions to answer now. Well, I'm glad you'll have some podcasts to work on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for, for setting up. This was a pleasure. This was really fun actually very informative yeah i think it uh it gives a lot of people something to think about other than is that fair is that not fair like this is an onion that gets peeled back really really fast yeah Yeah. i appreciated your expertise on the subject you've got me thinking about so many other things that i didn't even consider before so thanks for having us here right on you guys have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone peace